Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Hello, Father Anthony Perkins, and welcome to the Prying Priest Podcast. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. I love it, Father Yuri. You are the second priest that I have on the podcast. One is Father Jeffrey Reddy, and now you're uh, Father Anthony Perkins. So, Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the birds that I'm hearing in the background. Yeah, so we have inside, we have four birds, and I need to have my kids here to tell me what kind they are. I know I have a canary. Oh, I do have a kid here. So I've got a canary and I've got a lovebird. Those are the ones that make the n- most noise. And we have a parakeet. Yeah, upstairs is a cockatiel. And out back, we have five chickens. So that, Oh, wow. Yep. And that's mm-hmm, my daughter, mm-hmm. Claire. And, and she is uh, awesome. They, all my kids love birds. We have three kids living at home. Yeah. Yeah, great. But I love and, birds. And home- you know what? Let me tell you about the birds. So, sure. Um, I don't remember how, you know, every story is a bunch of things coming together, right? But part of this story was I got to go on a pilgrimage with Vladika Daniel and a group from church to the Holy Land. And when you visit monasteries in the Holy Land, what's really neat there is as soon as you go through the walls, there's an intention to, you know, create an icon of paradise. And birds are a big part of that. Right. And I was like, oh, this is, this is beautiful. I'd never thought about birds before, you know, not inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just great. I love, I love having them. Yeah. And, and you mentioned home. I, I think the last time we actually physically interacted with each other or spoke to each other, you were still living further north. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was in Rhode you, Island. Uh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So and that's now when I, was, I think you're in Georgia, right? I am in Georgia. Yeah. So and in between there, I was assigned to Allentown for a while. And then just a year and a half ago, we moved back to Georgia and I'm going to school and I help start a mission and I take care of another small parish too. So we're in Hartwell, Georgia, which is Northeast Georgia. It's pretty rural. Um, chickens are the biggest industry here in this area. And mm-hmm. I think every part of the United States has snow right now, except us in Florida, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. So could you, I, I want to start actually the podcast with, where can people find you? Like usually people save the plugs for the end. I, I want to do them at the beginning. Yeah, thanks. You, you have an online presence, so I want people I to, uh, to yeah. know where it is. My, my longest running thing is my OrthoAnalytica podcast. And I've been doing that since 2007, 2008, I think. Pretty early. Um, and so that's OrthoAnalytica and you can, you know, iTunes, wherever you get podcasts. And it's also, I have a website where I, I post those things and I also put homilies and things like that. And then I've got a podcast with good guy called good guys wear black with ancient faith radio. And that's, you know, the idea was it was when I was vocations director for the UFC USA. And so the, you know, the first 60 or so shows are really pointed towards that. 
but since then, you know, it's just whatever I'm interested in kind of, uh, and then I've got a live stream, you know, once COVID hit and we got locked down and I'm like, man, we got to put content out. And so I started doing it every day for a while. And then, you know, that's, that's really tough. That's a lot of work. Yeah. When you got other stuff going. And so I, I've, then I started doing it once a week and now it's a little bit less regular. Um, but that, so live stream father, Anthony Perkins, uh, YouTube, um, those are the main places. I have an academic page at academia.edu. So if you just search my name, father, Anthony Perkins, you could find all those things. Mm-hmm. And then the other way that I usually like to start the podcast is for my guests to describe how you met me or how you know me. And then from there, we can actually work our way back in your story to uh, learn more about you. Oh, yeah. So I, I always loved working with you. Uh, it was a camp, you know, All Saints Camp in Imlinton, Pennsylvania. That's that's Western Pennsylvania, just north of I-80. And we were counselors together. I think we were counselors together. Maybe I was already a spiritual advisor. But anyways, we I, worked together at camp. Yeah, we did work together at camp. We were never counselors together. Uh, I think. Yeah, oh, were you, you were a always, camper? Were you? No, I believe when you came, I was already. Yeah, that's I what may I have been a camper at TC, but I think you came to the 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 uh, eight to thirteen year old. Camp, that's right. And yep. I was already a counselor at that point. Yeah, right, right. But but yeah, so you were you were a regular part of my summer life, you know, and I always always loved that, and then. Once I did, I stopped seeing you, I got to meet your dad. So, mm-hmm. you know, and so I got to keep, keep up with what, what you were doing and stuff through your dad and, and he and I, you know, thank God we've got a, a good friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, one, I have a story about you uh, in that one time you were leading a prayer before we had a dinner at camp and you you gave the blessing and, and you used the, you asked God to bless this tasty food. And I had never heard a priest use the word tasty in, in a prayer before. And, and that struck me and it, 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 it grounded the prayer, you know, it was like, yes, it, this bless this tasty food. Right. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. And that's a memory that sticks in my mind. Yeah. And that's remember that we were working with, with kids, right. And mm-hmm. prayers are wonderful to learn by rote, but connecting them to something real you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's an important part of it. Not to be too silly because it really is prayer, right? Um, you don't want right. to be disrespectful, but you know, we do say smachnoho, you know, in, in the Ukrainian, Ukrainian. Orthodox tradition, which yeah. means tasty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So let's take a step back a bit and learn more about you, Father Anthony. I, the, the bits that I, I don't, I know only little bits of your life story. And one of them is that you were involved with the military in the United States, but I actually don't know the extent or what exactly you were doing with them. I, I did recently listen to the Areopagus podcast where you were a guest, <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of a lot of joking around about uh, about your role there. But I'm wondering if you could uh, speak a bit a bit about your role there and and what you did and and what that what that was like. Yeah, so this was back in the '80s, right? It was the the Cold War, right? And we didn't know it was going to end, right? It looked like uh, the Soviet Union was you know, always going to be powerful and a competitor and, you know, intentionally atheist and anti-freedom and all those other things. Right. (laughs) And, um, I've, I've got a strong duty gene and I joined, I did a couple of years of college and kind of wasted my time and college's time. And I was like, nah, this is, I got to do something real and, and grow up a bit and had always, you know, been interested in, in the military. So I joined and they have you take a test, 
right? To see what you're good at. And then they match that to the needs of the army, right? And I got to uh, select, you know, I went straight into the reserves and there was a military intelligence unit in Atlanta, not too far from where I lived. So I was able to enlist straight into that. And I went to uh, basic training, of course. And then I went to a language school. So just a year of doing nothing but learning Russian and enjoying Monterey, California. So I learned how to rock climb, you know, stuff like that. And yeah, came out of there and we lost half of our class. So this was one of those, it really was a crucible time in my life. I learned a lot about myself and I gained a lot of skills that have helped me since then. Because, uh, you know, they, you have to do well on, a, on certain tests in order to even qualify to go to language school. And of the people that made it into my class of the Russian school, we lost half. We lost half of the people, right? Just through attrition. And if we'd have lost one more, it would have been me, right? Because the first six months I was just struggling. I, I'd never had to bother learning how to study and, um, you know, and so I, I, I had to learn. I couldn't just fake it. And I learned some serious self-discipline skills. And so I graduated from that and went back to school, but, you know, I was in the reserve, so I kept training and things. So I went to, um, my occupational specialty was interrogator. So I went to a few months of that. And, you know, we have, we have this image, unfortunately, about interrogators that's been really tainted um, by abuses like at Abu Ghraib. Um, and that's, that's not what we learned. We learned the exact opposite of that. Um, you know, it was all Geneva Convention. And what I really liked about it was when you had to, we memorized the Soviet military, but the part that I really did well at was understanding motivation and how to develop rapport with people. So I was joking in that podcast about, you know, I'm always going to be the good guy. You know, if you're going to do good cop, bad cop, I'm, I'm the good guy and you probably won't need the bad cop, right? You just develop that rapport. And, you know, there it's a, it's an artificial situation, right? Um, because you're trying to manipulate somebody towards, you know, an end that is in their best interest, but you know, yeah. But those skills, you know, the self-discipline skills and then the, the teamwork skills, of course, and then that, you know, really trying to understand what it is that is motivating people um, and how to, to um, work with that. So, you know, it's, and I'm not a manipulator, right? I've promised to use the powers only for good. So as a priest, you never manipulate. We, we completely honor free will. Um, but to understand what someone is, is experiencing so that you can be there to assist. That's, that's what I love. So anyways, I, I did that for a few years. And uh, at the same time, I was going to the University of Georgia. I graduated, went to graduate school in Ohio, at Ohio State. And so I had to leave that unit and I joined a research unit. So for most of my 20 years in the reserves, I was a, an analyst. And I finished 20 years in 2007 as a chief warrant officer three. And, you know, it was, it was good. It was completely different from my first unit. My first unit was airborne, you know, it was all, you know, spit shine and all that kind of stuff. And this, the second one, it was like a mash unit. So you may be too young to remember mash, but you know, the idea of, you know, just completely unmilitary, they, they valued us for the skills that we brought to, you know, to the table. 
And that's what I did when at 9-11, I was mobilized for a couple of years and then stayed on longer uh, to do research for the intelligence community. So that's it. That's it. And then 2007, I left to become a, to become a full-time priest. Yeah. So I guess like the name Perkins is not a Ukrainian last name, but you're a priest within the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Yeah. So could you uh, maybe speak a bit about uh, how you got connected with this Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Yeah. And that's not, we can't blame that on Ellis Island or anything. <laughs> it's not like it was, you know, Petrinko or something like that. Um, so yeah, I am not Ukrainian. I have no Slavic blood. My wife, the the people at some of our parishes assume she was Ukrainian or Russian, and they would often speak to her in it, but she's not either. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, I grew up Methodist, and that's a, that was a wonderful way to grow up. I, I learned God's love for me, God's love for the world. I learned about, you know, the problem of sin and how Christ came to, to save us from this sin. And uh, eventually, though, I wanted more. I loved everything that I had, but I wanted more, especially as I started reading, you know, the church fathers. I read, you know, Father Alexander Schmemann on, on sacramental theology. And once you read stuff like that, as a, even as a Methodist, and they're Arminians, so you, there's a lot of, of wiggle room to kind of make it more, more like orthodoxy. But at a certain point, you're like, no, this, this isn't matching. Our, our actions are not matching. And wow, look what they're doing over there, right? They're, so the theology of beauty, the, the sacramental theology, this was just very attractive to me. And um, so that's, that's how we ended up uh, becoming orthodox. And it took a few years, right? I'm not going to change unless I'm completely in and my wife had to be completely in. And we were finally chrismated in 2000 when we were, I was at, in graduate school at, at Ohio State then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and it wasn't into the Ukrainian church. You know, it was, um, we started out as inquirers at the Serbian church and then we ended up, um, helping to, to start a mission for the OCA. And that's where we were chrismated in Columbus, Georgia at St. Nicholas. Mm -hmm. And then how did that transition from in, into the actual Ukrainian Orthodox church? So, yeah. you, so you, so at this right. point you become Orthodox, but you're not yet in that jurisdictional body of the Ukrainian Orthodox church. Right. Right. So yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. So yeah. And we thought we were in, let me set the stage just a little bit. We thought we were, we had it made, right. We had a, a good church. We had, I had a good job at Ohio state that let me, you know, research and teach. And, you know, I was, kind of an IT guy, but I had more duties than that full-time and bought a house, you know, it was, it was all fantastic. Then we had, a, had Nick, you know, Nick very well. And, uh, then 9-11 happened, right. And I was mobilized to the, to Charlottesville, Virginia, and I showed up and, you know, you're, you're completely out of your, your context when that happens. And, you know, you work, you're working long hours because we had to get smart really fast on the, on the problem. Um, but there's still, what do you do with your time? Well, I mean, I love the church. And so I, you know, the, the parish I ended up going to was the St. Nicholas Ukrainian Orthodox Church in, uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia with Father Robert Hollett and Pontie Christine. And they just took me in, you know, it was, they were still a, a young mission and I had all this energy 
and they were willing to let me use that energy uh, within the parish. So teach me chanting and let me work with the website and, you know, just all kinds of things like that. So it was, um, that's, that's how it happened. And the St. Nicholas was, um, you know, we didn't use any Ukrainian. So it was, you know, culturally Ukrainian, like, I guess if you're going to have a, a dinner or something, it would, it would have perahi, but it didn't have all of the, the things that, that you would see at, at a, a church that started out as an ethnic Ukrainian church. Um, and then later on, once I started going to seminary and things, that's when I learned more about the actual Ukrainian part of the U- Ukrainian Orthodox Church. But yeah, that was it. So Charlottesville, Virginia, that's how we ended up becoming Ukrainian. And so for the first year, just to tie up the story, um, you know, I was there in Charlottesville and my family was still in Columbus at our house. And then when they kept me on for the second year, we're like, you know what? This is this is not great for us. We should we should be living together. So we sold our house and just moved everything to Charlottesville. And so that's we ended up staying there a few years. And that was fantastic. I got to be a deacon for three or four years, um, getting ready for the the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to go back to your childhood, you were it's it sounds like you grew up well within a Christian setting that that your parents, I'm assuming, kind of taught these values alongside the church that you went to. Could could you speak a bit about kind of the the lasting legacy of the way that your parents handled religion at home? Yeah. Yeah. So my uh, mom, especially, uh, was, was really involved. My grandmother, whom I spent a lot of time with, uh, she was very faithful and she would always have a Bible next to her chair and not just to, you know, set stuff on, but you know, it was dog-eared and, and read and had all the notes in it and things like this. So that was very much a part of it. This was important to the people in my life and, and my dad too, by the way. And, uh, but we got a musical home. So one of the ways that I've always experienced, you know, religion have, I've always grown in Christ is through music and the Methodist tradition is very much a hymn tradition. And I still think that the Methodist hymnal is one of the, the great gifts of Western civilization. It's just, it's fantastic. And I, I know all those hymns, right? Um, and I was grew up, you know, going as a member of the choir, as a member of the youth choir, going to camp, and never doubted the love of God for me and for the world, right? And there was also a, a very strong fellowship element of that, you know, a way that you learn how to behave towards people. And it's also tied in, you know, my, my family's from Northern Pennsylvania. You know, it's that, that kind of New England, Northern Pennsylvania, New York State stoicism, right? Where um, it's community, but it's, you know, there's, there's not open confrontation. Things are handled uh, without uh, rancor, right? And so that's, that's very much a part of who I am, this love of God, love of music, a belief in, belief in harmony, and that finding a way to, to build harmonies with people is, is an important part of being a Christian. And, you know, also being in church, we, we were always in church 
at least on Sunday morning, quite often on Sunday evening, on Wednesday evening for, for choir practice. And that wasn't something that I remember complaining about. <laughs> you know, I, I probably did. You know, I was probably like every other kid. Uh, but I do remember that I, I enjoyed it even as a child. I've had a number of people on the show here who grow up with a similar story about their childhood in terms of faith in the home and going to church. But then something happens that really puts a, a stick in the mud, so to speak, like a, um, a moment of doubt or, or an idea or, or perhaps an experience that they go through that acts as the, the first domino in a series of dominoes that leads to a deconstruction of faith. Um, to, to the point now that it's almost a trope in cer certain <laughs> evangelical cir circles that, oh, have you gone through your deconstruction yet, right? This deconstruction and then reconstructing your faith in a more mature, enlightened kind of way. And I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about that, um, that pattern that I think we're seeing in society now, and then, uh, but reflect on it in a kind of personal way in, um, in how you would have experienced moments of, of doubt or, or anything like that? Yeah. So one of the things, let me just contextualize it a little bit. So when I was a teenager, I had what Methodists call a warming of the heart. You know, so I had this experience while I was studying. Um, it was the first chapter of St. John Gospel. And, you know, it's pretty kind of profound, right? And so I talked to my mom about it and she sent me to spend the day with the preacher to talk to him about it. And then he announced that Sunday that I was going to, I was called to the ministry, right? So this is when I was a teenager, right? Wow. And, okay. That's, and, that's a lot of pressure. Right. It is a lot of pressure, but it wasn't, I didn't feel it as pressure, right? Because God has always been an active presence in my life. I've always known, I don't hear voices or anything. It's more of that, that sense of awe and sense of reassurance. Now, the, the closest I've come to that kind of dark night is in my, when I came back to, to university after being in the army, I took a philosophy class and we read Nietzsche, right? And if you've read Nietzsche, it's, um, he was a mess, right? Brilliant mess. And he writes very well, even the translations from German, um, that there's this kind of existential angst just built into it. And I remember that put me in a funk. But I had friends that I could talk to, especially in graduate school. And we had conversations about this. I had one of my best friends was a, an atheist. He was an anarchist, but he was a friendly anarchist like Kropotkin. And, you know, we would, we would have late night discussions and he was like, I don't see why you need this. Right. And I would try to bring him on. I'd use Plato and I'd use these kind of intellectual ideas. And I finally ended up telling him, well, because I know it's real. I mean, this is, this is how I experience life. I don't experience it empty. So that's, that's the closest I've had is, but it's not a doubt. It's just, um, a feeling of, you know, of, of kind of a, a darkness of, um, that demon of noonday. And that happened by the way, also when I read Dostoevsky's crime and punishment, it took me so many times to finish that book because he does such a good job of capturing that, that angst and, then finally, if you make it all the way through, which it took me years of starting it and saying, no, this is, you know, this has put me into a funk. Um, and then you finally get to the end and you're like, oh, 
that's the payoff. Wow, I don't know if you've read it or not, but it's—I won't spoil the end. But I haven't read—I uh, haven't read read that one. No, that's you know what I've—I've I've read. You know, everybody says read the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah, okay, fine. That—that feels more like kind of a metaphor or something, right? It's yeah. This is not. This is a story of just someone who's a mess and um, how they come out of it. So I recommend it, Crime and Punishment. Yeah, but I, as far as you know, being you know, doubting Christ, doubting God. Now I did something worse. You know, I, you know, there was a time we didn't go to church very often at all. You know, we were just kind of going through the motions. You know, if you ask us, we were Christian. Yeah. If I give him life to Christ. Yeah. Does that require you to go to church? Nah. <laughs> Not really. And then when we had Nick, that got us back to going and, you know, we, we realized how much we had really missed it and we got active again and that activity is the one that then led me to start looking for an experience that was even even deeper and more profound. And that's what led to orthodoxy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you speak about perhaps one thing that the you know orthodox brand of Christianity offered that was not present in the Christianity that you grew up in? Yeah, like I said, first there was the there was the kind of the intellectual, the mind stuff, right? This this sense of connectedness to history, not just to history, but to Christ in history, right? Um, sure, it, it can be present, right? Protestants could do a better job of connecting people to that, um, but that's how I experienced it. Was when an Orthodox Christian said, "Here, you should read the Apostolic Fathers," right? and then reading Father Schmemann and other sacramental theologians, I was like, wow, this is, this is how Christ acts in the world, right? This is how the Holy Spirit moves among us. And that was great and profound. But what really, really made me realize that there was something, there was a huge gap because those just added to things that were already part of my, my understanding. It was when, uh, someone told me to read the monk of Mount Athos and about, uh, St. Siloan. And that was just amazing to learn because monasticism is not a part of, you know, the, the culture that I come from. In fact, there's a, there's a kind of visceral negative reaction against it and to see it from the inside and to see the beauty and the struggles and to see the spiritual life, right? That's what it is. It's the spiritual life writ large. And I was like, that, that's real. That's, that's what I've been you know, experiencing mostly poorly. <laughs> and there's a way, there's a way to bring Christ into, into my life in this new way that I haven't done. So the combination of that and a prayer book <laughs> were, were just really, really fundamentally profound. Can you speak a bit about what is something that in your transition into Orthodox Christianity that perhaps was lost when you became Orthodox? Some, something from your, um, you know, kind of childhood, adolescent Christianity that not, I'm asking not, not something that was just, you know, that stuff that you put aside to become Orthodox, but maybe something that is actually was valuable, right, and useful, but then it didn't have a place in the Orthodox Church, at least as you experienced it. Yeah, early on. Yeah, because the 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 parish that we converted into was pretty. It's what you'd call kind of a traditionalist, 
right? And so there were things that that I loved that I had to put on the back burner, um, but that that have I've been able to bring back, you know, in ways that I love them. Um, you know, for so let me give you an example. I love singing. You know, that's a big part of my experience as a human being and as a Christian, right, is singing. And I was very fortunate that even as an inquirer, I was allowed to sing in the choir. But it was it was very different. So it was a cappella, which is awesome, right? And it, we were using mostly OCA and rocor music. So it was also, you know, it was on five bars and it was familiar harmonies and things. But um, there was an attempt to do it completely without artifice. So I was used to singing baritone and bass, you know, with some vibrato, right? And they said, no, you don't, don't try to, to make your voice beautiful. Just, you know, <laughs> just sing, right? And so that was, that was new, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate that that is a, a consistent and internally consistent and useful way to do church music. Um, but I missed that. I missed singing you know, without any kind, without pride, Lord willing, with other people who are, are good singers, just um, just sharing in this experience of glorifying God with that kind of beauty and intensity. And that, that doesn't, that is not a part of Orthodox worship. Um, so, for example, Handel's Messiah grew up singing it every year, at least parts of it. And in Columbus, Ohio, our Methodist church, we would bring part of the Columbus Orchestra in to do it with us. And it was just fantastic. The acoustics were perfect. perfect. It was wonderful. Um, and, you know, now that, now that I know Benedict Sheehan, and, you know, there, there is that within Orthodoxy. Um, but for a while, that was completely off the table. But at the same time, I was learning the tones and so on. So I, uh, but I missed the hymns. Right, like I said, I had the Methodist hymnal pretty much memorized, and you know that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful stuff. Um, so yeah, that's that was a, that was a part of it, and there was a simplicity also that I missed, right? Because Orthodox can seem like there's so much that you have to figure out. That's how I felt before I could, you know, do it before I could be orthodox well right and i miss that simplicity we'll come to find out no that was a that was a burden that i didn't need to try and carry right the, the life in christ is simple uh, within orthodoxy um so but as an intellectual that does tend to be a, a temptation mm -hmm. i find that when orthodox worship let's say the choir at the front or the singers if it's too perfect there's something off yeah. about the worship, right? That there's there's this there's this homeliness when you can when when you when you are just when you can see that people are just singing plainly, right? Together. Yeah. And it sounds right. good, it sounds beautiful. But if there's 
sometimes there's just too much of a glean and a shimmer and a shine on it, right? And you want to yeah. be like, no, 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 no. Let's let's get our hands in the mud a little bit here. Yeah. Like I need somebody to sing the wrong words soon, or else I want it's gonna somebody be too to perfect. sing sharp. You know, I need the tenors yeah. to go flat a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's such a wonderful experience of singing with real people, right? Who are just in love with with God and in love in the music, right? Yeah, it's. Um, and, you know, without trying to outsing anybody or without, you know, there is a perfect offering and I work with musicians, right? My, uh, the, the people who lead the singing in our mission, they're, they're no kidding, trained musicians and they, they get, I don't want to say that I frustrate them, but I do tempt them to frustration, right? With my like, no, it's going to be okay. Just start singing. Everybody else will follow along. And, mm-hmm. you know, do you really need a pitch pipe? can't you just pick a note, you know, and just sing? And they're like, you know, they look at you like you're such a, you know, Philistine, right? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Step up your game, Father. Uh, but only in in love, right? But I, I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's so nice. There's a thing about amateurs, right? There's a there's a beauty um, in that simple, simple offering of a community that is there at the, and happen to be singing together. Right. So this idea that that comes out of part of our Orthodox experience where you hire professionals, right, who may not even be faithful, that's bizarre. I mean, that's almost like hiring a professional speaker to come and give the homily for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though they might not be, you know, Christian in any way, but they're a really good speaker. Yeah. And we've given them a topic. So, you know. Yeah, right. Here you go. They're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm I'm with you, and I love. Oh, one of the things I love, I love the, one of the things. So what that I missed in the tradition that I came into Orthodoxy with was just simple hymns, right? The liturgical music is awesome, right? And that's the pinnacle, yes. But when I grew in in the Ukrainian Orthodox part of it, you know, there's a there's a love of hymns know, what I would call hymns, you know, so, you know, before church, while you're sensing in a lot of our parishes, they'll sing with fear and humility, right? You'll have some kind of nice, pious hymn being sung. And whereas in other Orthodox traditions, you wouldn't even think of doing that, right? And I love it. I love it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I did miss that. I I miss that a lot. (laughs) So, mm-hmm. so Ukrainian Orthodoxy gave me back a lot of the things that I missed and kind of the simple, you know, it's, and, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way. It's a folk culture. It's kind of a, a, a peasant culture. It's, it's grounded around the people. There isn't any, um, uh, artifice, you know, it's any kind of artificialness that, that I see anyways. And that was very much my experience of, you know, Methodist congregation life, right? It's the potluck. It's the singing the hymns together. It's, you know, it's the fellowship. And yeah, yeah. So I've, I've loved, um, loved my life in Christ in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask about, um, you, you have a particular interest and, and I picked this up from listening to the Areopagus uh, episode on UFOs. But uh, you have a particular interest in the topic of like paranormal and UFO kind of things. 
Um, could you give like a quick outline <laughs> of um, where maybe some of that interest uh, came from and maybe just tell people what part of it you are interested in and what parts you're not interested in? Yeah. Yeah. So now it's just kind of fun. But growing up, you know, growing up in the uh, I was born in 67 in the 70s and 80s there were a lot of shows on it and stuff. So, you know, Bigfoot and UFOs and things. That was that was back there. And I'm also a huge fan of fantasy and science fiction. So mythology. I, I love cosmological systems. And I love playing with that. So, uh, you know, role-playing games, that was a big part of growing up. And it's still a part of our family life. You know, creating mythologies, playing with them. And then, you know, learn allowing those to point you towards a deeper understanding of true cosmology. And so, so early on, you know, it was, it was interesting to ask, you know, well, are there aliens, you know, and are there UFOs? Are there creatures that we can't see? You know, how much of this stuff is, is real. Um, but mostly it was just kind of fun to think about and fun to talk about. And so one of the, so I don't take it seriously, right? And I don't I don't take a whole lot seriously. This is something that frustrates people about me. I take the serious things seriously, but seriously, but you know, I'll act like I'm serious about other stuff. But that's a a peculiarity of this culture. Um, so I I'm interested in how people experience their culture and faith. So that's also a big part of it now. Is you know, why is it that ancient aliens is such a, an attractive mythology, right? And then how, how can you use people's interest in that to, to, to point them to something that is true, something that is, you know, healthy, something that will lead them to uh, real fulfillment rather than just this kind of, um, I don't know, interest, fascination, I guess. Yeah, so that's that's where it comes from. But but now it's it really is just part of my joy of mythologies and playing with ideas and talking with other people about ideas. Um, so and and there's there are intellectual questions that do come up that I have fun with as the, as a theologian. So you know, we have sacramental theology, for example, and baptism is a big part of that. Why are we baptized? Well, we're baptized so we can join the church, so we can be in Christ and all this. Well, you can get an even better understanding of what it is and isn't when you start asking questions about, well, okay, so, um, you know, do I, do you baptize an alien? Right. And it's a silly question. It's one of those, how many angels can you put on the head of a pin in one way? But the reason we ask questions like that is because it, it allows us to, to figure out what's important, what's not you know, to sharpen that understanding. And as long as you don't take it too seriously, right, um, it, it can sharpen that edge, you know. So I don't expect us ever to have to have a council. That's what it would be require, by the way, as a council to figure out the question, do these aliens, can they be baptized? Should they be baptized? Um, I don't ever expect that because I, I don't expect aliens to become a part of our experience. Um, but having talked about it, we have a better understanding of what baptism is and what it isn't. So I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question or not. So I'm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, but the, 
the true cosmology, right, is fascinating. And I'm so happy that Father Andrew and Father Stephen are, are, are exploring this, right, in a very accessible way uh, with, their, with their new podcast. And because I read about it, you know, you can read it, especially in that, that sacred temple period of time. But, you know, you never know, you know, well, how do we as Orthodox, how do we, how do we treat that intertestamental literature? Right. Because mm-hmm. just because the Ethiopians have the book of Enoch in their Bible doesn't tell you how you treat it. Right. Right. <laughs> so anyways, I, I've, I love reading that stuff and understanding, you know, trying to understand what it means and how it how it affects our interpretation of Scripture and so on. But when you what it opens up is this idea of, man, we are really we are not the sum total of creation. Right. You've, you've got other things that, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis wrote in the horse and the boy, their story is not your story. Right. Mm-hmm, it's a mm-hmm. fascinating story. Right. Just don't get too. It, it's not necessary to know all the details. There's a reason why we don't know so much about the angels. But uh, Michael Heiser is responsible for, for some of my my interest in this cosmology, because. Um, I talked a little bit about it on that Ariapagus podcast, but mm-hmm. he writes very well on, on this topic when he says, look, Elohim, that just means that's just a category, right? That's a category mm-hmm. of people whose, whose natural place is not this place. And right. I was like, wow, that's, that's incredibly powerful. So yes, God, that is a way of understanding God, but it's also a way of understanding angels, you know, all these other things and things that we have no no idea about, you know, we pretend like we have some kind of precise, precise hold on this because we've read St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, right? But mm-hmm. no, that's, <laughs> it's artificial precision. It's designed to teach us certain things about, you know, the way, the way our progress can look. But it, if we, if we believe that we understand, you know, the, the, the state of angels, I love it when mm-hmm. people make say things like, you know, well, angels, um, you know, angels can't, can't fall or angels can't repent and things like that. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Don't be so sure. We don't know. Um, mm-hmm. As far as I know, it's never been in a council. Then we would know. Right. But rather we're pretty agnostic about it. We have strong opinions. Right. And we behave as if, but that's because that's the safe way to behave. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the spirits are knocking things over on you in there. <laughs> yeah, they don't like it when I start. Um, you know, the the barrier here is very thin, right? We live in a thin place because of all of our prayer and our holiness, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> have, yes, exactly. have you read? Um, have you read Charles Williams? He's no, no. Okay, so he's one of the inklings, right? So people love Tolkien mm-hmm. and, and Lewis. Yes. Well, Charles I've Williams. I've been told to. I've been told to read him. Some people can't stand him. Right. Because uh, I taught a class at seminary on uh, literature and orthodoxy. Right. Or, you know, and I, of course, I so I brought in science fiction and fantasy because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a proper English teacher. It was much better when Father Anthony Ugolnik taught it because he's a no kidding literature professor. But anyway, mm-hmm. so I, I assigned this book called Descent into Hell that is the best description of prelist I've ever seen. Right? Um, and man, there was a revolt. They were like, this is the worst book ever. But anyways, Charles Williams, he's really good at describing those, that, that kind of thinness that happens uh, around, 
for us around the liturgy, right, within the liturgy, around the Eucharist, that happens around people who are profoundly prayerful, right? So we have these visions of described of, of St. Seraphim of Sarov. But um, so, so that's the, that's the cosmic, and that's the real interest. So the other mm-hmm. stuff about aliens and things, elves and stuff, that's just playing with these more profound ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have about, you know, a minute and a half or so left in the public episode, but I will, I will be asking you one more question for the public episode. But before we do, I just want to tease the listeners with what I'm going to be asking you in the private episode. So... Um, I'm, I, I'd love to talk to you about role-playing games such as D&D and, and things like that um, because so many Christians have such a wide perspective on what does this stuff do, right? Are you, are you opening up your heart to demons when you're taking on the role of you know, these characters and you're playing as them, right? Yeah. What is, what's happening to your spirituality or to your interpersonal relationships when you play D&D? So I want to talk about D&D. Um, and then I also want to talk about, uh, we mentioned, you mentioned at the beginning of uh, your role uh, as um, an interrogator. Is that the right term to use? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I joked in, that I was a, I was a, <laughs> I interviewed people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I, I want to talk about the role of, uh, or the relationship between manipulation and counsel, right? Uh, yep. The giving of advice. You, you, you're a pastor now. You, you, you. You guide people, but what's the relationship between guiding somebody and manipulation? Ooh, yeah, right. Fantastic. So, tr- trying to tweeze out some of those um, perhaps subtle differences. Yeah. Um, and and just a quick note to the listeners: we talked about we've been talking about two different podcasts. Uh, one of them is called the Areopagus. And that's uh, on, you can find it anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Uh, and one is called Lord of Spirits. Uh, and both of those have as, well, at least one of the hosts is Father Andrew Stephen Damick. So um, check out those podcasts there. I, I enjoy listening to them personally. So Yeah. And the neat thing, one of the neat things about being assigned to Allentown is that Father Andrew was my neighbor. We lived about a, a mile and a half from each other. I lived in Emmaus. And oh, okay. He, was, yeah, he yeah. lived in Emmaus and was, was a priest there. And then uh, he introduced me to, to Michael Landsman and, and he and I are very close now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you want do you want me to start working on one of those now or is that for No, later? no, I'm going to ask you one more question now for the and this will end the public side and then we can go to the Patreon side after that. Okay. But the question uh I'm wondering if if you would be willing to share a story of uh, so you were just talking about that concept of of thinness, right? These these certain places <laughs> well, that's that's a bird right there. <laughs> yeah, that's the love bird. <laughs> Um, see what we're experiencing now is if you ever watch those home renovation shows this is an open concept house (laughs) gotcha so everyone is just in one room and we're all in one room all day every day yeah oh wonderful um so yeah uh the 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 question I, i i so we talked about that concept of thinness yeah right where like there are certain times where there seems to be a thinner barrier between perhaps the spiritual and the physical, right? And that could it, be, it can be felt more palpably. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share about a time in which you've kind of personally felt a thinness. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in awe of that thinness. I would say the thinness 
is pretty much gone into nothing in the divine liturgy. And it's not something, you know, I don't see visions. I don't see glowing. I don't, none of that. It's just an appreciation. It's the awe that comes from that. And I think the ability to experience awe, we can be given it. Thank God in glimpses, right? Hopefully when we need it, right? This sense of glory, this sense of being connected to the good, the true, but you can cultivate that, you know, it's, it's like other, you know, intellectual or, or physical muscles, right? So, so in, in our daily prayer, we can cultivate it through that silent awe, right? Um, not looking for revelations or anything, but just an ex, just a recognition that God is with us. Um, and that's not something, you know, I'm not a hesse cast, right? I'm just a, a, a simple person that occasionally prays, right? Um, but yeah, that's, that's part of the reason you do it is so that you, you're the reality of, the, of what's going on at the divine liturgy. You can experience that at a deeper level. Um, my experience of love of family, right? This is another time. So it's not thin in the sense that, you know, I'm the, I have a sense that, you know, I could, I could step into the, the throne room of God or something like that, but God with us when I'm, when I'm with my family at dinner. Yeah. Thank God. Um, I, I do experience that. And also at times where there's profound beauty, um, music, you know, when at a very good, uh, like a concert, you know, just close your eyes and, and harmonies are an icon of God. They, they're an experience, they're a musical icon. And so just opening yourself up to that and just, you know, letting it affect you. Um, I, I experienced that not every time I listen to music, of course, or else I wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, but it's always, it's always there. It's always available. And then one last time, a place that I really needed it, but where I did not expect it was when I was in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it's, it, we can treat places like that. It's high desert. It, there's not a whole lot of life in the part that where I was. But even there, just the, the Hindu Kush mountains and the sun rising behind them, um, I would make it a point to be there at sunrise uh, to say the hours. And that was, yeah, God with us. So thank God. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?